Cool. Awesome. Well, good morning, church. How is everyone doing? Good? Good. Well, it's um, a pleasure to be uh, bringing God's word to you this morning. Uh, me and Michelle actually missed last week, unfortunately. Uh, we were actually driving to uh, Lancaster, which is about four and a half to five hour journey. So I was able to actually rent a car and drive up there. And Michelle was sleeping for the whole journey. So that kind of indicates I was like, driving all right. I had a kind of smooth drive. I hope so. I hope so. Um, but today we'll be in Hebrews chapter um, 4. So if we turn to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> so Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll be reading just three verses um, this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through to um, 16. <clears throat> so I will read and then we can pray. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen. Let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word changes us. And Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be more conformed to your image. We want to look like you. So Lord, as we learn from the word this morning, help us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may act upon the word of God, bringing new life, Lord, so that you may be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to start by telling a short story um, of a man called Michael Fagan. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of a person called Michael Fagan. Some of you probably have. Uh, but he was born in 1948, and he had four children, and he was married. And he was um, born in London. Now, he had Irish descent. So um, a stereotype of probably Irish men is that they drink. I know for um, Ghanaians, it could be eating eggs or something like that. But um, for, for Irish men, often it's, it's drinking alcohol. And one faithful night, uh, Michael Fagan and his friends were drinking the beer and having a good time, and um, they were throwing bets around. And they said, and Michael Fagan specifically said, I bet that I can break into Buckingham Palace. Everyone was like, ah, oh, surely not. You can't do that. Lo and behold, Michael Fagan went out that night towards Buckingham Palace. And Buckingham Palace, of course, is, is a massive building. And he was able to squeeze in through the gates and he was able to scale up the wall of Buckingham Palace. And eventually, he found a window, and he found it a little bit open. So he was able to open up the window into Buckingham Palace, step into Buckingham Palace, and sit on a bed. Now, this isn't really a big deal, if only if no one was in that bed. Lo and behold, it was the late Queen Elizabeth II sleeping in that bed. And you kind of, you kind of picture it. Can, the Queen might look and say, Philip, is that you? He's like, no, it's Michael in your bed. <laughs> and um, this is a true story. And um, of course, so what happened there, like the queen buzzed in um, for help. 
Um, no one came. Um, so for about 10 minutes, the Queen and Michael had a conversation for about, but that lasted about 10 minutes in time. Eventually, the Queen got up and ran to get help, and eventually Michael Fagan was apprehended by the authorities. Now, I'll start with that story um, because the issue there is that Michael Fagan didn't have access to the Queen. It just wasn't, he didn't have access to that person. And this morning, my um, goal and my, my prayer is that we may know that in Jesus, we have access to the Lord, to God, the Father, the God that created the universe. Bigger than the Queen, bigger than the President, bigger than anyone, he is the creator of the universe and everything in it, and then we have access to him through Jesus. Um, so let's start with verse 14. It said, since then. Now, because, because I've just plunked you into chapter 4, um, probably a response to since then would probably be since when. What has happened uh, before this that's led to this chapter? So I thought it might be helpful for me to just provide some context. So if you go to chapter 1, if you turn your Bible to chapter 1, we see um, that the author focuses on the absolute supremacy of Jesus above all things, including angels. Uh, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Chapter 2, we're warned not to neglect on, on such a great salvation that is found in Jesus, but we ought to remember that he is the foundation of our faith and that through his death, he has destroyed the one who has had power um, of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. In chapter 3, um, through to chapter 4, verse 13, the theme of Christ's supremacy is continued. Um, we see that um, Christ is greater um, than Moses. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the build of the house than the house itself. And then we are then instructed not to harden our hearts in unbelief that the Israelites who walked through the wilderness but are called to enter into the internal rest that is found ultimately in Jesus. And we find ourselves here um, in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, let's actually read verse 14 one more time. Since then, we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, the author describes Jesus as a great high priest. Now, this could be a given, but I thought it might be helpful for me this morning to quite simply give you three reasons as to why Jesus is described here as such a great high priest and what his priesthood means for us. First reason, Jesus has passed through the heavens. Now, in the Old Testament, kings... Um, like King Solomon, King David, um, were people who, who represented God to the people. And priests were people that represented the people to God. So, for example, um, the office of high priest was first established way back in Exodus after the Lord brought the people out of Egypt. 
out of slavery. And Aaron, the brother of Moses, was first called by God to serve as the high priest. And ever since that time, Aaron's descendants served as a priest in Israel, ministering in the tabernacle and then later on the temple. And they would primarily be the mediators between God and man, right? Now, going back to what I mentioned, God is holy, yeah? Well, I didn't say that, but God is holy and God is righteous. And the main issue about access is that because we're sinful, we're sinners, and we don't have access to a holy and righteous God. But what's amazing is that the same God that is holy and righteous and perfect, he desires to dwell with his people. So he instructed Moses to build a tabernacle and Solomon to build a temple so that his presence may be there. Now, God isn't confined to four walls. He's much more bigger than that. He's omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere at once. There's not a place on this world that he isn't. But back in those days, um, God's presence in those places was very unique. That wasn't um, anywhere else. Now, the temple uh, was divided into three main parts. First part was the outer court, and then the second part was the uh, holy place, and then, of course, the more, um, I guess, the back of it will be the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Now, um, history tells us that people would often tie a rope around the high priest's uh, ankle, so whenever he would go into the most holy place, um, if, for example, the rope would stop moving, um, it would indicate that the person isn't moving, which is, would indicate he's dead, because the presence of God was so intense in that place that people would die just meeting God in that place. Now, the reason why I, I share all this information is because the most important act of, of, or the most important duty, I should say, of the high priest was this act. So the act of going into the presence of God and sacrificing on behalf of the people and his sins. But the author here calls Jesus a great high priest. Now, how does this link with the idea here that Jesus passed through the heavens? We read it in verse 14. Jesus, um, who, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Um, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, a great reformed uh, Anglican scholar who taught many, many years in Westminster, said this helpfully. The, great, sorry, the greatness of this high priest surpasses all others. And this is seen by the assertion that he passed through the heavens. That is to say, in contrast to the high priest of the, of the Levitical order, who once a year passed from the sight of the people as he took the blood of atonement into the earthly sanctuary, Jesus, our great high priest, at his ascension, passed from the sight of the watching apostles as he entered once for all into the heavenly sanctuary, where to appear on our behalf, our author is speaking of something far more than a spatial journey, than as an astronaut, for example. His language is that of transcendence. Not only did Jesus ascend, but in doing so, he completely transcended all limitations of time and space. His transcendence guarantees his uniqueness and greatness. So, in short, the reference that we see here, that Jesus passed through the heavens, is actually indicating to his ascension. Now, his ascension was that time 
in, in most gospel accounts where Jesus died and resurrected and he ascended into heaven and the apostles watched him go. Now his ascension here, the, the author of Hebrews is, spe- is speaking that he transcended time and space and he established himself as the great high priest. Now, notice the difference. Uh, oh, no, not difference, sorry. Um, Notice that the author immediately goes to next. I'll read it. It says, Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So after learning that Jesus ascended, that he transcended time and space, that he is king, that he is the high priest, he tells us next to hold fast our confession. That is, that he, he says that we should stop, we should keep believing in Jesus. That this same Jesus that ascended into time and space, that is great and is a high priest, we should keep our hands on him. Now, we live in a world where people are deserting our faith. They're losing our faith. Um, They're turning their backs on Jesus for various different reasons. And this whole book of Hebrews is about perseverance. That we should persevere. That we should have a firm grasp on our confession. Last week, um, though I wasn't here, um, I listened to the live stream. Um, Brother Brother Zeph was able to preach to us and and remind us that we should insist on the gospel. That is to um, be reminded again and and again what God has done for us in Jesus. The author of Hebrews represents this same statement in chapter 10, verses 23. I'll read. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. Now, we all desperately need to be reminded of the gospel. This is why we come to church every single week. This is why we observe the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper and and baptism. This is why we encourage to attend small groups and prayer meeting. All of this is that we may be reminded of the great truth of the gospel. We need reminded of the gospel because... This allows us to hold fast to our confession. Uh, The chapter before this, in chapter 3, verses um, 12, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as this is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Holding fast to our confession is a group project. We can only rightly hold fast to our confession if we're doing it together. Someone in their bedroom can't do this. We need need each other. We need to be reminded of our call. We need to be reminded that we are called to hold fast. Now, there's there's a small difference in this verse than the holding to confession in chapter 10. It says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now, our hope is, is ultimately found in Jesus But I believe the author probably had something in mind. How often do you think about heaven? Like, seriously, like, how often do you think about heaven? And what that would be like? I'm convinced, and I say this to myself, I'm convinced that we do not think about heaven as much as we should. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning... If, if you are right with the Lord in Christ, your future is so bright. 
you are heading to a land where there will be no pain or suffering, where there would be no graves, where there would be no depression, where there would be no winters or snow. Well, I'm not sure if you like snow, but if the, it, it would be amazing, and Jesus will be there. And when we set our minds there, when, when we wake up and we set our minds in that future reality, that has effects where we are right now. When our minds are there, more joy, more comfort is pulled from that reality and actually dispensed where we are right now. We might not be in a good place at the moment, but if we're in Christ, we know that we're going to be in a good place. And Jonathan Edwards once said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Such a, such a vivid image for eternity to be stamped on our eyeballs, where everything we do, we have eternity in mind. Now, that's the first reason. Second reason, Jesus is our great sympathizer. Verse, verse 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is able to sympathize with you. Now, the actual Greek word for sympathize here is a compound word. Well, basically, that, that essentially means a compound word is two um, elements of a word or more. And now this um, specific word is two. So the first part of this compound word is um, a prefix for with or co. And the second part is a verb, so to suffer. So in short, the word that we see here for sympathize in the Greek is to co-suffer. In short, Jesus co-suffers with you. In, in chapter 2, um, verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because, for, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he deeply understands what it means to be human. So think about all the limitations of what it means to be human. All the, all the frustrations of just waking up and just, just all, all the different frustrations of what it means to be human. Jesus understands that. Um, in Dane Orland's helpful book, Gentle and Lowly, he reads, he speaks, the reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is that the difficult path we are on is not unique to us. He has journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can, re can relieve us from our troubles, like a doctor prescribing medicine, it is also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. In short, Jesus is the only qualified person to sympathize with you because he was tempted in every way yet without sin he knows the depths of betrayal he knows what it means to have friends turn their back he knows what it means to be cut off and here the passage says that he um, that that in every respect so every single way that you think of when it comes to your suffering or challenge injustice whatever it may be Jesus has, has been there. He's felt it. 
and he sympathizes with us. Now, not only Jesus can pull you out of a hole of sin and suffering, but he alone desires to climb into that hole and to, bur- and to bear your burdens. Jesus is able to sympathize. Now, think of John 11. Yeah? So John 11, if we actually turn there, John uh, 11. So the Gospel of John 11. And I'll quickly read verses 32 to 36. John 11. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the the Jews said, see how he loved him. So here we see before any sort of miracle takes place, Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus. And he sees the people grieving, and he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily um, come in dejected, but he allows himself to feel what people are feeling. Jesus alone, Jesus allowed himself, sorry, to be affected by the grief of those around him. He shared in the emotions of the people he loved. He wasn't indifferent, he wasn't cold, he wasn't unfeeling. But he shared in the pains of his people because he loved them. He shared in them. Now, someone might say, okay, Adrian, that's really cool and really helpful. But does Jesus actually sympathize with my suffering? My struggle against sin, right? It's this fight against sin that we have to fight every single day. Um, C.S. Lewis made this helpful point of, of speaking of a man walking against the wind. So think about it. Imagine... It's a windy day, well, it's not hard to imagine, but a windy day, and um, the idea that you're going against the wind. And think of this wind as temptation. So this wind is coming against us constantly. And it says this, once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down. So eventually, we all end up lying down. It's, just, it's too much. But Jesus never laid down. He kept going. He kept going against that wind. And he endured all temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than anyone. He knows what it, what it means to, say, to, to not say no. Uh, wait, to say no. <laughs> we know what it means to say no, but he doesn't know what it means to say no. He kept going. If we've lasted 10 minutes, he's lasted longer. And he knows the greatest strength of that temptation, so he's able to sympathize with that struggle, whatever it may be. Now, our greatest need isn't that Jesus would be a sinner like us. We need someone who's different to us to actually help us. We need a sinless high priest who doesn't need rescuing, but rescues us. We need someone who actually provides rescue. Now, he himself isn't trapped in the hole of sin. So if we've messed up, if we've sinned in any way, he's not with us in a sense of he's done it as well. 
but he gets in to save us so that we can be out of that hole. Now, as you're trusting in Jesus this morning, Jesus not only sees your suffering and pain, but he deeply understands it. Whether that's um, recurring illness or a chronic illness, whether that's these bouts of depression or just tiredness, he understands it. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The Puritan John Owen uh, once said on this verse, Christ is inclined from his own heart and affections to give us a help and relief that he is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense of fellow feeling. That idea of fellow feeling, what you feel, what you are struggling with, Jesus feels it. Jesus isn't detached from whatever you're going through, um, but he's deeply invested turning these things for your good and for his glory. Third reason, last reason, Jesus is a merciful and gracious high priest. Um, verse 16, oh, sorry, back to, back to Hebrews. If you turn back to Hebrews, um, chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author now explains that we can come confidently to the throne of grace, that we may receive um, grace and mercy in time of need. Now, there are multiple times in this book that the author instructs us to draw near, to draw near, let us draw near. It's constantly throughout the letter of Hebrews. But he makes a point of not just that we should go, but how we should go. We're not just called to just go to God, but we're called to go to God confidently. Now, how can we come to God? How can we draw near to God confidently? This is um, a complete contrast to what, what I said before. Um, the um, author, uh, or so the author of Hebrews explained, or I explained a bit about the high priest, how God is holy, God is righteous, God is perfect. And how can people like we who are sinners ever stand in the presence of God? The answer is um, chapter 10, verses 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through, through Christ. Because Jesus' death on the cross, our sins, though they're many, are completely atoned for. So if we're trusted in Jesus... This is what it means for Christ to be a propitiation for our sins. That essentially means that the wrath of God that we incurred because of our sin, because of our rebellion to God, has been satisfied at the cross. And that we are fully reconciled. Yeah? Two enemies that were once far apart are now reconciled to God. Martin Luther once explained this as the great exchange. Right? We give Jesus our sin. And he gives to us his righteousness. Like we give to him our dirty clothes. And he gives to us his finest righteous robes. And, we are to ex and what are we to expect when we come to Jesus? We are to expect mercy and grace. He says that we uh, may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. 
Now, the, who is the person that sits on the throne of grace here? Clearly, it's Jesus. The person that sits on the throne of grace dispenses of his mercy and his grace to help in, the, in, a time, in our time of need. One of the marks of growing as a Christian isn't actually always being stronger or being more talented or whatever. Actually, it's actually being more needy. One of the marks of actually spiritual growth is when you recognize your sinfulness and your need for Jesus. And one of the proudest moments, and I remember with me, when I first came to the Lord, it was like, I thought I was like the, the guy. But then the more I grow, the more sin I see in my heart and the more I need Jesus. And this is what it means to be a, a mature believer. Verse, um, verse 17 of chapter 2, we read, Therefore, um, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, he might be, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, it's quite interesting is that we are not asked to come to a set of doctrines. We're not even asked to come to a church. We're not even asked to come to a gospel. Now, all of these are very important and vital, but we're asked, but we're actually commanded to come to a person, Christ Jesus himself, and only he can help us in our time of need. Now, it is tempting to not obey this passage, to come to him. We tend to shrink back because of our mess. Many times I have not come to Jesus because of my sin, because of my mess. I have this slight feeling that he's disappointed with me. That though he loves me, yeah, yeah, but he has this slight disappointed um, feeling towards me. Like, oh, Adrian. I would have this, this thinking about Jesus, and that, that would actually stop me from coming to Jesus because of my sin. But the only solution for my sin and for our sin and for our mess is to actually come to him with our mess because he's the only solution. His grace for us not only pardons us of our sin, but it empowers us to live holy and righteous lives. Now, because Christ's priestly work for us, he now makes us priests. We believe in the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, right? So that basically means that, that we are able to have access. The same way Michael Fagan didn't have access to the queen, we have access to God through Jesus, the true high priest. This is not just for pastors or for elders or for the heroes of the faith, but it is for you and you and you. Everyone can have access to God through Christ. So tomorrow morning, you might wake up um, for work. I know most of us work from home, but people still commute. Um, even in our commute, we have access to God in Christ. In our temptations this week, whatever they may be, you have direct access to God in Christ. In the midst of your bouts of depression, you have direct access to God in Christ. In the midst of relationship breakdown, whether we're a family or, or, or in marriage, you have direct access to God in Christ. 
And we know by Ephesians that when we go to him, he is able to do far more abundantly than we can either ask or think. That should ground us. That should encourage us. Let me, let me pray and then we can end. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us direct access to you in Christ. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to um, behold you and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, I pray Lord, that this message um, may help us, Lord, to come to you, to not um, shrink back, but to recognize, Lord, that you have made us priests and that we have access to the God of the universe who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.